The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. And uh, <clears throat> just the opportunities we have in families to to learn to live the Christian life in many good ways and learning to be loving and to be uh, patient and all of these things that you provide for us and and just learning to, that uh, everybody deals with different stuff and uh, it's a reminder that uh, you've provided us everything for life and godliness uh, and uh, so we're thankful for the time we've had sharing about these things but now as we open your word and look at it tonight think about what your son Jesus Christ was praying for his disciples we ask that you might uh, cause us to better appreciate what we have uh, at this present time we thank you for it amen <clears throat> So because I was gone a week, and I'd really like to kind of just back up, and I just want to run through these verses. I'm going to go back up to verse 20. I'm going to read down through these, and I'm just going to make a couple of, of passing statements, and then we'll move into where uh, what we're hoping to finish up tonight. In verse 20, so John 17 and verse 20, <coughs> excuse me. There we go. <clears throat> Verse 20. Jesus, uh, obviously, all of this, John chapter 17, is his prayer. But not concerning these only do I ask, but also concerning those believing uh, in me through their word. That would be, that's where you and I come into this prayer. In order that they all might be one thing, that's referring to the body of Christ, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they might be one thing in us. So this is, uh, if you remember when we were looking at this idea that we always think about the body of Christ that exists in Christ, but Jesus expands it here. Paul does the same thing in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, that we're also in the Father. And so the body isn't just in Christ, but the body also is something that exists in our relationship in Christ and in the Father. And, that, and it adds, as Paul says in, in Colossians, it adds a level of depth that actually helps knit our hearts together when you get this. <clears throat> and there's a mystery tied to all of that. But he says part of the purpose of that in verse 21 is in order that the world might believe <coughs> that you sent me. Verse 22, and the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them. This is now talking about eternal life. So he's looking at both sides of our relationship. This Verses 21 and 22 are an application of John 14, 20, where he says that in that day you will know that I am in the Father and that I am in you and you in, or you in me and I in the Father. By the way, I just, I've looked up at Josh just as I was saying that it reminds me, that was something that Josh helped me with a number of years ago, is logically from God's point of view, are, is Christ in you first or are you in Christ first? You're in Christ first. And there are some passages you can use to prove that, but John 14, 20 is one of those that indicates that because it says, you in me and I in you. So from God's point of view, he sees us put into Christ before he actually sees us united. But remember, it all happens like this. It's not like you got to wait five minutes or a tenth of a second. But there's a logical formula because what he sees is he sees you dying with Christ and rising before he actually gives you eternal life. You have to go through that <clears throat> from his point of view, and there's some other scriptures, but 
verses 21 and 22 here are the counterpart. Verse 21 is talking about us being this one thing, the body. In verse 22, the glory he's giving to us, if you remember, is eternal life. The Father gave the Son, we saw that over in John 5, the Father gave the Son to have eternal life in himself. He was the first human being to walk the earth, possessing eternal life. That would knock the socks off of, and that's a good thing, it would bowl over most Christians if you told them that, because I think most Christians think everybody that's ever believed in God through the history of the world has always had eternal life because they don't understand what eternal life is, but we're not here to teach that all over again. So it says in verse 22, And I also, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them in order that they might be, again, one, even as we are. <clears throat> in, and I in them, that's how we have eternal life, that's regeneration, and then you in me. So we also have, not only do we have uh, Christ in us, but we have the Father in us. It's by Christ in us that we have eternal life, by the Father in us, we receive a new nature. We're born from God so that we actually are his children, as John says over uh, many times over in 1 John. He's talking about this. Um, uh, it, but the purpose of that is in order that they might be, be matured, perfect tense here, he's looking at us being matured, as a, uh, it's a participle, uh, into one thing in order that the world might know that you have sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. Now, we talked about this then, and I just wanted to say this before we moved into this next section. In verse 21, when we are made one in the Father and the Son, and the world might believe, looking forward, that's referring to the opportunity that we have right now. And it's not that we are one all the time, but it's that when you have, let's say, let's say somebody walks by in the grocery store and let's say Josh and I happen to be talking and we're not just shooting the breeze talking about the latest product that some somebody has him selling down there. But let's say we're actually talking about the things of God and we're sharing fellowship with eternal life down there and we're having this interaction that in that moment, somebody can witness that and they can see if God's working in them. They're not going to see it if God's not working in them, but they can look at that and go, I'd like to have that. I'd like to have that kind of a connection with somebody where I'm able to actually appreciate what God's doing and we're able to do this, you know? And so that's something that's going on here in the present time. And so there's a matter of faith that goes on with that as they are looking forward to something. But then we come to the next part in verse 22 when we have this, this eternal life where that comes together. But then in verse 23, when it says, when, we're, when we have been matured, and he uses a perfect tense, looking to the future here, that we are all going to be perfected. Now, right now, we aren't all matured into this one thing at the present time. In fact, I would say for the most part, hardly any believers really are matured into this one thing in this way. But it's something that's going to come in the future, and it's going to be in order that the world might now not believe, but the world might know with experience. Why is it knowing it with experience? Because it's actually witnessing him doing something with us, and they're experiencing something different. And I believe that this is going to this time out here in what we would call the kingdom, and not only out into the kingdom, but I would extend it even out here to this event called the Great White Throne. Now, this is the reason why, and I want to look at a couple verses that I don't think we got to last time we were together. Let's just look at all of them real quick. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you've got a lawsuit dispute going on between two believers. And he says in this matter in verse 2, Or do you not know that the saints will judge? They will judge the world. That's talking about us. They will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, by the way, there are people in a movement that would agree with a ton of stuff that we agree with, and they call themselves free gracers, but they think only those believers that really are exemplary or those believers that don't really blow it, only those believers will actually get to reign in the kingdom. Where's the free grace? I know, yeah. it, it, exactly. And, and so they come to this and they would say, well, this is, it says the saints are going to judge the world. But then Paul turns right around. And he says, if the world is to be judged by you, if you want to talk about a messed up group of people that I would say, say you're going to have two, two, two people in this whole church, maybe you're going to be able to do this. Because the rest of you guys, there's no way you're going to judge. But the thing is, Paul looks at that. In multiple times in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes statements that remind us you know, even believers that are really messed up, and you know, when we were talking about families and all the kind of crazy stuff that goes on in our families and such like that, it's just a reminder. I said, you start listening to other people's stories, you go, oh, we're actually pretty normal. Why? What, what were we really saying? We all are dealing with stuff. And we could say that on the other level. You start talking, you thinking about your problems, not just the goofy stuff that goes on in your life. But you start thinking about your problems, and it's always easy to think nobody else deals with this stuff. And then you start getting to know people in the body of Christ. And I think this is one of the reasons that the body of Christ really needs to fellowship and interact with others. Because how else are you going to find out what people are going through? They're not going to tell you this casually as they waltz out the back door of the church. Hey, good sermon, preacher. We'll see you next week. You know, that kind of stuff. You know, like, you know, kind of what I grew up with. That's not going to happen. It's going to be when you're taking time and interacting with each other. You know, you're sitting down having coffee. Then you start finding out, guess what? Everybody's dealing with stuff. You know, and it may not be exactly what I'm dealing with, but everybody is. And all of that just reminds us, hey, the Corinthian church, it's kind of, is, is it what we want to be? No, but there's a lot of people that are here. Then he goes on, or do you not know that we, we now he, now you see, he started off, they, the saints will judge, then you will judge, and now verse three, and we, he brings himself in there, we will judge the angels, so here he's looking at the fact that we as the church are going to have a role in judging the world and in judging angels. And I put, let's go from here, let's go over to the book of Revelation now <clears throat> and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26 and the one that is overcoming, again, we're not going to go through and prove this, but the one that is an overcomer is a believer. Uh, some of you went over that a week ago when, when Josh was teaching through this. I was listening to that the other day. The one overcoming and keeping, keeping safe, um, my works unto the end. He doesn't say you're doing, the NIV used to translate this, doing my works unto the end, but that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you keep the work of Christ safe. A real believer, the work of Christ is always going to be valuable to them. Even if they walk away from the faith, as they say. In reality, if they're real believers, they're going to hold that, that precious. And I will give to him authority over the nations. See, this is why we judge. As Paul says, Paul doesn't tell you why you and I get to judge. But the reason we get to judge is because Christ is going to make a promise 
that as an overcomer, he's going to give you authority over the nations. And not over one city or two cities or five cities, but over the nations, plural. And he, referring to this overcomer, he will shepherd them. Some of your Bibles will have rule, but it's just a translation of the word shepherd. And he will shepherd them with with a little figurative wand that he holds in his hand that's just kind of a lightweight thing. If he thumps you on the head, it's like a pool noodle. It's like, oh, I felt that, but it doesn't know. With a rod of iron, not even a wooden stick, a rod of iron. Like the vessels of a potter, they are broken. This is talking about judgment. This is exactly what he was saying. And what Paul was saying over there is that we're going to judge the world. We don't know what that means when you read Paul. But when Jesus says this to John, now all of a sudden you got a picture. Oh, we judge the world because we're actually going to be reigning with Christ. And sitting there holding a rod of iron, whether that literally is a rod of iron, probably figurative for the power we exercise. And out there during this time of the kingdom we're going to be able to exercise this authority with regard to the nations. Why would you do that with regard to the nations? What in the world are you going to do in the kingdom? You could go to the, not the last book, the second to last book of the, of the Old Testament, Zechariah. You go to Zechariah 14, and it tells you in the kingdom, all this stuff's going to be great, but the nation that chooses not to go up and keep the feasts during the kingdom, they're going to be punished, and God, they're going to withhold rain. And so, Maybe the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm just throwing this out as an example, and I always, my, my precedent for this is the last chapter of 1 Kings, where God's in heaven, Micaiah's telling, telling Ahab and um, uh, Jehoshaphat this vision that he's seen, and he saw all these angels up there, and he sees God saying, how shall we kill Ahab? And one says this way, and one says this way, and finally one says this is the way we do it, and God says, we're going to do it that way, because God's sitting up there going, I don't know what to do. No, no, because God is employing the spirit beings in the, in the exercise of the world kingdom. It's exactly what you read in Daniel. God is ruling the nations through spirit beings, okay? So he's going to turn down there. He's going to turn to Ronnie. He's going to say, Ronnie, this nation over here has not come up for the feast this year. What should we do? Ronnie says, withhold rain. That's what we're going to do. I really think that that's, that kind of thing is what's going to happen. When it says that we get to do it, he's, remember, you and I aren't in these foggy states right now where we're like, well, I don't know, or, well, you know, my cousin did that. And do we really want to be that hard? You know what I'm saying? How people today, they, it's, Peg and I were watching something about people doing jury duty. And, and jury duty is a hard thing because you get people that bring all kinds of baggage with them and they don't just judge objectively according to the facts. Out there, when we're saved completely and our minds are working right and we're not foggy or, or moved by passions, compassion for our, 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 past our, yeah, our past experience, our people that we've like, we're just objective going, hey, this was the law. This is what they broke. This is the rule. This is what we're going to do. And that's one example of something that would happen with regard to the nations. And they're not going to... So what's going to happen is, well, let's keep going. We're not done with this yet. Look in chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8. This is uh, to the church at Philadelphia. I know your works. I have given before you an open door, which no one is able to shut it, because you have a little strength. That's not a criticism. 
Every time he has a criticism, he says, I have something against you. He doesn't say, I have something against you. He says, I'm giving you an opportunity because you don't have a lot of power. But you know what's good about that? Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians, when you don't have a lot of power, whose power gets seen? God's. God's. My power. What? My power. My power, yeah. So he says, you have a little strength. And you have, this is a, this is a, a good compliment, you have kept or kept safe my word. And have not denied my name. Behold, I'm going to give some from the synagogue of Satan. Now, what do you, when this expression, out of the synagogue, whenever you have that ek, out of a group, that means it's a portion of it. Okay? If he just meant the synagogue of Satan, he would just say the synagogue of Satan. But there's going to be a portion of that synagogue of Satan. Uh, meaning, and I would take from that, that sometimes there are believers that are foolish enough to get involved with unbelievers. So you might have, what? Sometimes you have believers that are foolish enough to get involved in unbelieving groups. So that, in other words, there are believers that are in the synagogue of Satan. Yeah. But those who are not believers out of that group are going to be, and that would be, I would probably say it's going to be 90 or 95%. That's just, a, I'm just making up numbers because I have no specifics from this. But those out of the synagogue of Satan, the ones that are unbelievers, he says, I'm going to cause them, he says, they, well, they declare themselves to Jews, but they are not, but they lie. Are there, are there people that are believers in Jesus Christ that have gotten themselves wrapped up in churches that think that they're Jews and think they're supposed to be keeping the law? In other words, are there some believers maybe that joined outright joined like an Adventist church? Yeah. Or a Reformed church? Oh, yeah. Reformers are those, right? They say that we're spiritual Israel. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But they're not. But they lie. Behold, I'm going to make them, those some out of this, they will come and they will worship before your feet so that, and that they might know that I have loved you. Now this is talking about Christ loving them. So they're coming, and this is going to be now when it talks about this, this, I believe, is extending out here into what we would call the great white throne judgment. And those people are standing in judgment as they're coming to be judged. And when they bow, because remember Philippians chapter 3 or chapter 2, after it talks about Christ's humility and then his exaltation, it says that every, and God's given him a name, that at the name of Jesus, not Jesus, but the name that God's given to him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So everybody's going to do that. So out here, everyone that stands judge, judged out here, they're not going to stand there at the judgment seat of at the, the great white throne judgment, pardon me. They're not going to stand out there cursing him, swearing him out, pointing their finger at him, saying, you're horrible, you never gave me a chance. None of them are going to do that. And as they bow their knee before him in that moment, they're going to be able to look up there and who is with Jesus Christ as he's judging them? The church. The church. And we are those, putting it in the context that, that Jesus is saying in John 17, we're all those that are matured. They're not going to look up at there and see us going. They're not going to see us arguing up there. They're not going to see us bickering. They're not going to see us going, wait, what about that guy? Hey, that was my cousin. We're not gonna, they're not going to see any of this stuff. They're going to see us completely matured. Okay. One last one here in, in Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> Look at the end of the chapter, verse 21. 
says, And the one overcoming I will give to sit with me in my throne, even as also um, the Father gave me to sit with him on his throne. And we've talked about that before. Christ today is not on his throne, despite the fact that most all of Christianity, I'm not talking Christendom, I'm talking about real believers. Most real believers think Christ is sitting on his throne right now because this is what they're taught. But all they have to do is examine scripture and realize, no, he's sitting on the Father's throne. But when he comes back here, and he comes back at the second coming. Here's the rapture. This is the second coming. When he comes back here, Matthew 25 comes to be. Then the Son of Man will come with his holy angels, and he will sit upon his throne. And then, and then he's going to judge the sheep. So that's this judgment that's going to follow here. And so this is the time here. We're sitting with him, with him on his throne during this period of time here. And people are going to see that. They're going to witness that. And I was just, I'm trying to think who we were talking to. Oh, I think maybe it was Josh and I were talking with Wayne the other morning at coffee. Um, and uh, it, it, there was something that we were talking about. And it's the fact that, you know, from the point that the rapture goes happens, Paul says that the, the last verse of 1 Thessalonians 4, wherever Christ goes, we go. And we're not his entourage. We're his bride. And there are couples that are like that. There are couples that go their separate way and take separate vacations. But that where the bride of Christ is not going to do that. She goes everywhere her groom goes, and we're always with him, which means that every time he comes to earth, and the book of Ezekiel is going to indicate that he comes three times throughout the year, at least, he comes to earth, comes to the, new, to, the, to the earthly Jerusalem, we're always going to come with him, and there's going to be all these people on the earth that they're going to witness are coming with him and being engaged in whatever he's engaged with down here, and they're going to be witnessing these things. Okay, so with this in mind, let's go back to John chapter 17. So John chapter 17, understanding this, and notice what he says in verse 23. This is exactly what we just read over there in uh, John uh, chapter uh, 3 and verse 9. Revelation 3 verse 9, thank you. That at the end of verse 23... That says that the world might know that you sent me and that you love them just as you loved me. Now, over there, Jesus said that they will know that I loved you. Here he's saying they're going to know that the Father loved you. See, think about that. We're not only loved by the Son, loved by the Father. And part of that is coming in a time in the future. When we are granted, a, think about it, a status and a position, who else has ever shared that except the persons of the Godhead? No one. No angel has ever sat with God on his throne. We're granted to sit with the Son on his throne. He says that in Hebrews chapter 1. To what angel did he ever say, sit here at my right hand? Never does that. But he does that to us. I am, I'm thinking of Romans 8. Father's loving the son. 
and why does he love us because we're in the son mm-hmm. um, one of the ways the father loved the son was he gave him a commandment he gives us things to do um, so I'm thinking all of those things when I think of that yeah okay. it's not just that the father's having warm fuzzies for yeah. us yeah no yeah. he's always acting yeah so I see it as how his how is the world seeing the father's love for us in his decree, it's all coming together and nothing was able to stop it and he finished it. That's kind of what I see. Yeah. And they can see that we're being granted this position up there that they do not have. They're standing being judged by him and they see us with the judge. I just, there was a, I'm, I'm not recommending the movie. It's not a bad movie by any stretch, but it was a movie that my girls really liked when they, when they were growing up called Ever After. It's kind of a retelling of the story of Cinderella. And at the end, the wicked stepmother and the and one of the stepsisters that was bad, they're brought in before the king, not knowing that the king has since married their stepsister. And it's and he's the one that judges them, but they see her sitting there while they're getting in trouble. And it's just to me, it's just it's just a little micro picture of this situation that you and I are they're seeing God's love by this by the status that's granted to us at that time and even more so that we're granted the privilege back here to judge <laughs> it's going to take us and they could stand in, anyway I could go I on Pentecost or one of the old dispensationalists say this is uh, this is all the non-dispensationalists having to say we're right <laughs> I don't think that's exactly what it is, but I think it's funny. Well, because some of them will probably be there with us, and they're going to be like, hey, I'm glad this is what we're Yeah, I'm glad. But the ones that are non-believers, you know. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so let's move on to the next set of verses that we have here. Verse 24, Jesus prayed. He says, Father, those that you have given to me, that's the disciples. I was thinking about this with regard to another passage of Scripture um, the other day, but it's one of those things that um, that a lot of Christians struggle with. Um, it's uh, I've been part of it is is I, I told Josh I wanted to talk to him about this passage in First John chapter two, but it, or First John chapter three, but it has to do with this statement that Jesus makes or that John makes in there about our having boldness facing the Father, and. Uh, Part of the issue is, just I'll kind of throw this out because it's really been on my mind as I'm thinking through this, is that the world, consisting of these antichrists, are constantly telling us, well, I, this is not true about Christ and this is not true about here. That's one thing. But the other thing they're doing is they're saying, and this is how you need to do church. This is how we do religion. And that's not a new thing. People today say, oh, the church is being dictated by the world. They've been, the world has been trying to dictate how the church should meet and carry on since the first century. All you have to do is read the book of Revelation. They were already having those problems and Jesus had to get after them for it because some of the churches were struggling with this. But this is what they do all the time. And you hear believers say this, you know, how else are we going to reach these people? You know, and the thing is, you know what? The only people you in the end reach are those that the Father gives to the Son. Now he's talking about the disciples, but I think we're included in this from what he set up in verse 20. We also are those... Every one of us are going to come to know that he was sent by the Father. Every one of us is going to come to know who he was. And so we talk about how to get them to listen. And one of, I, a number of passages ran through my mind, but just to keep it brief, 
The passage in, in Acts 16, where Luke tells us that the first, does anybody know who the first convert in Macedonia was? There's a name. The person's actually, we have a name. It's a woman. Lydia. Lydia. And it says that God put it in her heart or opened her heart to give her attention to Paul. <laughs> this is how it happens. This is, why, this is why a little kid can be sitting in the church service like this and the church is going on and people are singing and he on his Sunday school paper or whatever it is every week is just drawing pictures of grandpa on his tractor. Things like that. That's me. It's so like, I'm not interested in any of this stuff. I'm going along. If I were, if it were to have been up to me, my parents said, do you want to go to church today? I probably would have said, no, I want to stay home. I don't know. It's a long time ago. But then all of a sudden, he, God causes me to, causes this little guy's heart to be open. And all of a sudden, I'm interested in hearing about who this Jesus is. In one evening, it just, it's like that. It's not, there's not even a buildup for me. And all of a sudden, I hear who Jesus Christ is, and I realize that's different. For me, and, it was, and I've told you this before, there was no terror involved on the part of my mother. It was, that, it was the fact that God caused me to realize I would come under judgment. And I think it's as crazy as can be to think that at five years old, I knew I was going to go to hell if I didn't believe in Jesus. I knew that. But I knew that I could believe in him because Jesus was alive. I knew that too. It's just, anyway, so when we think about this, we think about those that you've given to me, every one of you, every believer across the face of the earth has always been somebody that the Father gave to the Son. In fact, Jesus over in John chapter 6, and we had, we had a speaker at our church uh, back a couple years ago that made the comment that uh, out of John where it says that uh, unless my Father draw him, and he says, that means to woo slowly and nice. It's, it's nothing, there's nothing harsh about it. I'm sitting right there and I flip and I'm looking just back, back a couple chapters in another book where it says that the disciples were dragging their nets. They weren't wooing their nets on the shore. Same word. They were dragging their nets full of fish. In fact, every place where that word draw was used, it's never wooing. It's always, it's always work. And so the Father doesn't woo us to Christ. He draws us. He has to, it's like putting the lasso around us and pulling us to Christ. Not that it's a lot of work for him, you get it. But it's not, he's not wooing. It's unread. You can't refuse it. Yeah, yeah. Which is exactly what that person was trying to do because that person was trying to, to deny. They're all afraid of Calvinism. <laughs> and this isn't Calvinism. This is just the Bible. Anyway, all this to say, those that the Father has given to me. So we've been given to the Father. He has drawn us. I desire in order that where I am, that they may be, that they also may be with me. So this, this is a request. This, if you remember back in John 14, 3, Jesus says, uh, in my Father's house, there's, there's a lot of places to abide, a lot of places to rest. But I'm going to go get a place ready for you. Those aren't suitable. I'm going to go get a place specifically for you ready. And if I do that, then I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Here he's actually asking the Father, this is what I desire. It's not just what I'm going to do. He actually says here, I desire this. I want this. I want them to be where I am. And I don't think he's saying this 
saying, Father, I really, I, I promised this, now I wish. This was part of the plan. <laughs> this is part of the plan. He's just expressing now to the disciples, it's not just that it's part of the plan, it's really what I want. I think that's an important thing for us to think about because sometimes you get Calvinists that they're so wrapped up in the decree of God that they almost make God like a slave to his decree. God's not a slave to his decree. His decree is what he wanted. And not just what the Father wanted, but this is an example, it's what the Son wanted. And we could probably demonstrate from Scripture, it's also what the Holy Spirit wants. Because we do have a passage that says that the Spirit, uh, um, oh, I'm going to mess it up, but he actually uh, yearns to envy. <laughs> it's a bad word, I'm not doing it right. But it's like he, there's something he really, really wants for us in terms of what he's doing. So he says that they may be. And now here's part of the purpose. It's not just that we're with him, but there's also another part. In order that they might see the glory which you have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now when he says the glory that you've given to me, there are people, this happened very early in the history of the church. There was a man by the name of uh, Arius. He was a, a bishop in uh, Egypt. And Arius developed the idea that Jesus was a created being and that he derived everything from the Father and that the Father gave him this because he was a created being. But the, and, uh, and, and the church's response, they corrected some of it, but they also created a whole other problem, which we call the eternal, or it's, they called the eternal generation of the Son, which is a bunch of philosophical nonsense. All they needed to do is say, no, he's the son. He's eternally been the son. That's all there is to it. And it would have been done. But when he's making this statement here that they might see his glory, if uh, the glory which you have given to me, if you just turn back to the first part of this chapter and go to verse 4, he says, I glorified you on the earth, completing the works, the works which you gave me that I should do them. Verse 5, but now you, Father, glorify me alongside yourself, and here it is, with the glory which I have not yet had. No, the glory which I was having, and that word have in the Greek is an imperfect tense, meaning it's not just that I had it at a time, it's something that I continually was having in the past. This was his, okay, which I was having before the world was, being para alongside of you. He's always para alongside you. That's not a negative context. That means I'm I'm with you. We're together. We're we're there's a oneness there involved in this. Okay. That glory now, that eternal glory. Now why did why does he have to ask for it in verse five? Why does he refer to it as the Father having given it to him in verse 24? Why does he have to do that? Why does he How's the Father give him glory? Why did he need to give him glory? What did Jesus do? It's Philippians chapter 2. Let's go over there to Philippians 2. You can keep your finger here. Philippians chapter 2. He did. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. He's encouraging you and I to have a proper attitude towards one another. And he uses that form of that word to reflectively think a couple times. And then in verse 5, and then you reflectively think this. Or most of your Bibles say, let this mind be in you. But the verb is, literally, 
reflectively think this or frame your mind with this in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, what was his frame of mind or his reflective thinking? He existed in the form of God, but he did not look at his equality of God as something he had to grasp or snatch onto, to hold onto, like, I'm not going to give it up. No, because it wasn't done in that way. But he emptied himself, and people have spilled tons of ink trying to explain what it meant to empty himself. But it tells you he took on the form of a slave and came to be in the likeness of man. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And not just any death, but a cross kind of a death. In other words, he poured himself out, verse 7, by becoming humble, by being a slave. Now, a slave does whose will? The master's will, yeah. Not his own. Not his own. In fact, Jesus used that illustration over in the Gospels. He says, when the slave comes in from working in the fields, does the master say, oh, sit down, you're hungry, you better sit down and eat your meal, then you can get me. He says, no, the slave comes in and the master goes, you take care of me first, then you can eat your supper. <laughs> you're there to serve the master. And this is what Jesus did. Before Jesus Christ came to this earth and became born of Mary or even conceived of Mary, but submitting to everything that was part of the plan, he exercised his divine prerogatives as he, as he wished, always in keeping with the Father and the Spirit, because that's the nature of the Trinity. But he wasn't up there having to do the Father's will. But that's one of the big points. We looked a lot of that in the Gospel of John, where he says, I've come to do the will of the Father. I didn't come to do my own will. I came to do his will. By doing what? By saying the things he wanted me to say and doing the works he gave me to do, doing these signs that he gave me to do. Is that what he was doing? If we go back to the time of Moses, the son's up there, Father, hey, hey, what am I supposed to do now? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Hey, Moses. Oh, hey, Father, is it okay if I... This isn't going on back then. But it's what take... And that's actually not even what's going on during his earthly ministry. But you get the point. He's being a slave and he's humbling himself. That It's a, completely a background to understanding the Gospel of John. You don't understand the Gospel of John if you don't understand the Son being God, but only using what he has as God when it's the Father's will. Which is why he walks through Samaria and he's tired and he's worn out and he has to sit down on a well and the disciples go, hey, we'll go to town and get you something to eat. It's been a long walk today. It's because he's, it was the Father's will that he operate in the realm of his humanity and experience the normal human exhaustion. And then it's the Father's will for him to gauge a woman in his deity and shock the socks off her by the things he told her. And when the disciples come back, they say, here, eat something. And he goes, I have food which you don't know about. My, my will is to do the will of the Father. Or my food is to do the will of the Father. And they're like, who fed you? you know, they don't get it. But he moves from moving in the realm of his humanity where he's exhausted to moving in the realm of his deity where he's not saying, oh, yeah, give me that food. I'm so tired. And this all has to do with the fact that he humbled himself. So that's what it means when he emptied himself. He's just, he is... As a, he's becoming a slave and giving up the free exercise of his deity. And with that, he's giving up the free manifestation of his glory. He can't demonstrate his glory just as ever, however he wants to. He's going to do it as the Father directs him. 
So we go back to John chapter 17. He wants them to see the glory which you gave to me. That's a perfect tense. Now, the Father has not yet give him, given him this glory. He was asking for it back in verse 5 of chapter 17. But this, this word here, the glory which you have given to me, he's looking forward to, to his resurrection and his exaltation, and he looks forward to it with such certainty that he's using a perfect tense. This is why we look at tenses in Greek, and you always have to read tenses in context. Because the tense does not determine the time. The context determines the time. And we already know from the context that he doesn't have this glory yet. But he's going to get this glory upon his resurrection and ascension. And so when that happens, that glory is going to be something that the Father has given to him. And he's going to carry it out from that moment on. He's never going to... What? Where it says, may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's right. Precisely that they might see my glory. Or I would say, even though not even at the ascension, I even think that this is looking forward to our future out here in the rapture. He says, when he says that they're going to be with me, that's when we're all going to get to see his glory. See, the disciples didn't even get to see his glory at the ascension. Because when he ascended, he wasn't in bright, bright light, brighter than the noonday sun when he ascended. So would you relate this to first Peter? It, that's the passage that we're going to go to now. Yes, thank you. No, no, no. You were just going where we were going next. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I, I want to teach through all of this, but the essence of these first verses beginning in verse 3 down through verse 8 is the fact that you and I have a great salvation, but we don't have it all yet, but we're going through hardships. We're going through a lot of hard stuff that he calls grievous. And he says then, uh, let's go to verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is being tested by fire, it might be found to the praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus Christ is revealed, he's not revealed. And, John, and Peter then says, whom you, his readers, you haven't seen him. His readers have never seen Jesus, but you love him. And in whom even now you still don't see him, but you exalt with a joy that's inexpressible and having been glorified. In other words, he says, you still don't see him. So verse 8 is a parenthesis. It's just a parenthesis saying you're waiting for his revelation, but you guys didn't see him in the past. You still haven't seen him. You still haven't seen him. But the end of verse 7 says he's going to be revealed. And when he's revealed, then the parenthesis ends and he says in verse 9. This is, a, and by the way, this is a tough passage in Greek to go through because there, there are no main verbs. There are no main verbs in this entire text. There are some verbs, but they're always part of subordinate clauses. It's, it's really crazy the way you go through this. It, it doesn't mean you can't handle it. People have, people have done it. Uh, but it says, but you are carrying away then the end or the completion of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And that's his concern because in this letter, they're having problems with their souls. He deals with this several times. They're struggling in their souls with the, pro the, the, the hurt and the pain and the, the stuff that they're going through. Okay. But the point being in verse 8, he says, you guys haven't seen him and you still don't see him right now. 
But there is a time coming. Let's go over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. It says, Beloved, now we are God's children, but it is not yet plainly visible what we will be. If you try to look at each other as believers, you don't always see children of God. It's not plain. You, get, you see it once in a while. You get glimpses of it. Do I need to remind us to turn off our phone? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just joking with you. Um, but, it's, but it's not yet plain we will be. But, but when he is plainly visible, in other words, when we plainly see him, when he's plainly visible, then we, notice John includes himself in this, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is. Meaning that even John had not seen Christ in his full glory. Now he saw Christ, he was one of the three disciples that got to go up on the mountain as, long, as well as Peter and got to see him in the glory of his kingdom, but not in the full glory of his deity. He didn't get to witness all of that. What a good point. See, so even if John... In other words, he, he hadn't seen him in his full resurrected... What? He saw the transfiguration. Yeah. He's talking to Moses and Elijah. So that's why he wants in the kingdom. Right. Yeah. And, and we know that because we have other verses where he's talking about that they'll sit down and they'll be there with... Which is really it. awesome because Peter says a similar thing in Second Peter when he says we have a more sure word of prophecy. What's it more sure than? His memory. Yeah. Even though they had supernatural memory from the Holy Spirit to remember all this stuff that happened when Christ was here. He's saying, we have a more sure word of prophecy that Christ is going to come back and get us. That's the point. I mean, that's the... Our faith is more important than our memory, is yeah. what they're saying. Yeah. And, and John, all that he says in the first chapter about, it's like I can still hear him, and that's like I can still touch him. And it's so vivid in my memory still. But it's nothing like what it's going to be. That's right. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. Thank you. So... Even John, in other words, if John would have seen Christ even as he is, John would be changed already. But he's not changed. Okay, Peter's not changed. They're all still waiting to be changed. John's waiting to be changed. When Peter writes, Peter's waiting to be changed. In fact, when Peter writes his second letter, what Jesus had said back at the end of John, at the end of the Gospel of John, John 21, he started to realize, it's probably going to happen. Namely, I'm probably going to die. I'm going to take down this tent, just like the Lord said. You know, in, in, up until that point, maybe Peter's thinking, I, maybe I didn't get that. <laughs> maybe I didn't understand that. And remember, John doesn't tell us about that Jesus' prophecy to Peter until almost 25 years, 20, 25 years after Peter dies. He doesn't tell us about that. So we don't know that that word went everywhere. We do know it went around because John tells us a little bit about that. But this is, this is what, this is, I believe, the time, if we go back to John 17, that Jesus is referring to the disciples, that he wants them to be where he is. That's talking about him coming back and getting us. This is John 14, 3. He's preparing a place for us. He's going to come and get us so that we can be with him where he is. That's what he's asking the Father for here, is that they might be there. 
those that you've given to me. Not just the not just the 11, that's all of us because he said that back in verse 20. You and I, he says, I'm not praying just for these guys. I'm praying for those people that believe in me through his name. Why do you keep saying pray? Well, he's asking. He's asking. It's just because we use that word pray of talking to God. So I'm just kind of using it in the common vernacular. I'm not using it with... He's just talking to the fa he's just talking to the father. Yeah. Yes, he's just talking to the father is what he's doing here. And he's making but he is making some requests because he actually uses the word eratao. So he's talking to him and humanity. Yes. 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 I don't think so. I think he's, I, this, I, I, I just said this a couple minutes ago, um, that what he's doing is he told the disciples this back in John 14, 3, that this is what's going to happen. Now he's expressing in his communication to the Father that this is what I really want. And it's not that he's uncertain going, I don't know if it's going to happen or not. It's part of the decree. It's part of, it's part of the way God planned to deal with this. I think the importance of verse 24, because these 11 are listening in, you and I get to listen in because we have John 17, and we get to realize he wants us. He wants us to be there. It's not just, well, it's the decree. They got to be here. That bozo Tim down there that messes stuff up, I guess he's going to have to come there because we decreed this. No, he's going to say, no, I want. And it absolutely goes back to the eternal covenant in Hebrews 13. We, we've been promised he's, that he's going to have sheep. They're going to exhibit his character. Yeah. And so, Pratan, yeah. yes. Isn't, uh, didn't you say in this that Jesus is, um, this prayer, he's praying in his humanity. So it's not like he's using, you know, his divine nature to know that this is going to happen, right? Yeah. Or does he know? Because well, I think he does know these things. He, he is aware. That's why he's asking these things. That's why he can say these things, because they are things he knows. If you remember when this upper room started in John 13, in John 13, before he gets down and washes the disciples' feet, John tells us he knew he had come from God. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew he was going back to God. He's not sitting there going, because there's, you would, you'd, you'd, would not, well, maybe you wouldn't be. But there are a lot of books that have been written. I remember buying one when I was first in seminary because I got the author wrong. And I think, oh, I think that's the book that they mentioned. And I was at Powell's Books and I bought this book for two bucks and I took it home and started reading this. And I was like, I took it to seminary class. I said, is this one you're talking about? They're going, oh, no, 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 no. That guy was just, that guy was so bad on, on who Jesus Christ is. Oh, I was wondering because I was like, this is crazy. But you know what you learned in that book? And that this is true of a lot of people that aren't believers in Jesus Christ. They think that Jesus Christ was kind of stumbling through life, not really knowing who he was. And trying to figure out this divine connection that he had. And kind of, but they, they say, but that's kind of like you. Aren't you just kind of on a journey of discovery? And that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was not on a journey of discovery. He knew from day one what he was about. And that's exactly what John tells us in the, in the, as this opens up. When he starts talking to these disciples, he's not going, oh, I kind of, this is what I sit around and I dream about this with you guys. No, he's saying, this is what we're doing. This is what I want, and it's going to happen. See? Okay. So. So, oh, 24, yes. verse 24. So, he is excited. He's telling the Father he's excited because he's going to get his glory restored and they will see him as he really is. Yes. 
I think it's exactly what you're, that's exactly the way to put it. He's asking for this because this because this is what I want. This is what I want. The key word there is the behold. Yeah. It's not just like that. It's the oh the behold word is like I'm gonna fix my gaze on it and and I'm going to and I'm going to have a, a real understanding appreciation of it not going what 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 am I seeing what am I seeing no it's like oh wow that's yeah, yeah. and he says that's what he wants him to do it's all this conversation that he's having it's for the benefit of Eleven. it is it. it is and it's for our benefit as we read as we get to read this but in this context it's for exactly When Jesus goes out into the garden and he takes all the disciples with him to the garden, but he only takes three with him up there and then he goes a little ways. What do those three guys do? What do the other guys do? We have no idea. But you know, these guys have got done eating a meal. They've been listening to Jesus sit around talking and saying some of this stuff. And there was a little conversation at the beginning, but as it goes on, the conversation kind of wanes a little bit and wanes a bit. I, there, there's a part of me, and I'm not saying this is the case, but even at this point, I'm wondering if some of these guys are like, if we're gonna have tacos tomorrow <laughs> I, i'm just saying i'm not saying they're trying to be disrespectful i'm just saying i'm just saying just like just like the disciples fall asleep in the garden and jesus chides them for it can't you even stay awake for one hour i don't know that these guys are all super attentive to what's being said but remember earlier in the upper room jesus said you know, the, one of the benefits of the Holy Spirit for you guys is he's going to remind you of everything that I said. Especially yeah. Peter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he does. So the last statement in verse 24, that they might see my glory, which you have given to me, because you loved me, before the foundation of the world, in other words, before there was anything else out there, you already were loving me. You already were loving me. Because there was an eternal relationship. I thought we were going to finish this today. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm just afraid if we go into the last two verses that, that we'll end up going another half hour, and I don't want to do that with you guys tonight. So <sighs> That's all right. That's all right. I know if I go home, my wife will say, don't apologize. Just take your time. She's, she's always, she's my number one cheerleader saying, just keep, just, just don't worry about it. So, okay.